how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Jude. Well, now we're going to look at the little letter of Jude. Because it's so short and tucked away at the end of the New Testament, many people don't even read it or even notice that it's there. But it's a very wonderful little letter. And I'm going to start by doing something rather different. Uh, I've paraphrased this letter to try and bring out its meaning a little more clearly and uh, in modern language. And I'm going to read my paraphrase And on display, we've got the whole outline of this little letter, and I want you to follow the outline as I read. Um, The letter divides into two halves, verses 1 to 16 and verses 17 to 25. Though, again, I remind you that Jude never put verse numbers in a letter. That's an artificial division that's been added later, which sometimes spoils it. But uh, it's in two halves. And the first half is about a very dangerous corruption that has crept in to the church to which he's writing. I call it a cancer in the body. Then the second half tells them how to deal with that situation in a delicate way, how to put it right, how to correct it. So uh, the two sections are on both, but that uh, card at that end covers the first 16 verses, and this card covers verses 17 to 25. So while I read it, it's just a continuous letter, but I want your minds to go from step to step in the argument. This letter comes from Judas, Jude for short, one of the slaves bought by King Jesus and a brother of the James you well know. It is addressed to those who have been called out of the world, who are now loved ones in the family of God their Father, and who are being kept for presentation to King Jesus. May you have more and more of the mercy, peace, and love you have already experienced. Loved ones, I was fully intending to correspond with you about the wonderful salvation we share, but found I had to write quite a different kind of letter. I must urge you to keep up the painful struggle for the preservation of the true faith which was passed on to the early saints once and for all. I've heard that certain persons, who shall be nameless, have sneaked in among you, godless men whose sentence of doom was pronounced long ago. They twist the free grace of God into an excuse for blatant immorality, and they deny that King Jesus is our only Master and Lord. Now, I want to remind you of some of those absolute truths which you already know perfectly well, particularly that God is not someone to be trifled with. You will recall that the Lord brought a whole nation safely out of Egypt, but the next time he intervened, they were all exterminated for not trusting him. Nor were his angels any more exempt than his people. When some of them deserted their rank, and abandoned their proper station, he took them into custody and is keeping them permanently chained in the lowest and darkest dungeon until their trial on the great day of judgment. And in the same way, the inhabitants of Sodom 
and Gomorrah, together with those, two, those from two neighboring towns, glutted themselves with gross debauchery, craving for abnormal intercourse, just as the angels had done, and the fate they suffered in the fire that burned for ages is a solemn warning to us all. In spite of such examples in history, these people who have wormed their way into your fellowship pollute their own bodies in exactly the same manner. They belittle divine authority and smear angels in glory. Yet even the chief of all angels, Michael, whose very name means godlike, did not dare to accuse Satan directly of blasphemy when they were arguing about who owned the body of Moses, and he was content to leave accusations to God himself and said simply, The Lord rebuke you. But these men among you don't hesitate to malign whatever they don't understand, and the only things they do understand will prove their undoing in the end for their knowledge of life comes only from their animal instincts, like brute beasts without any capacity for reason. Woe betide them! They've gone down the same road as Cain. They have rushed headlong into the same mistake as Balaam, and for the same motivation, money. They come to the same end as Korah did in his rebellion. These people have the cheek to eat with you at your fellowship meals of love, though they are only looking for pasture for themselves. Like submerged rocks, they could wreck everything. They are like clouds, driven so, passed so hard by the wind that they give no rain. They are like uprooted trees in the autumn, with neither leaves nor fruit, doubly dead. They're like wild waves of the sea, stirring up the filthy foam of their own odious disgrace. They are like shooting stars, falling out of orbit, destined to disappear down a black hole forever. Enoch, who lived only seven generations after the first man, Adam, saw all this coming. He was referring to these very people when he made his prophetic announcement, Look out! The Lord has arrived with ten thousand of his angels to put all human beings on trial and convict all godless people of all godless deeds they have committed in their godless lives and of the hard things these godless sinners have spoken against him. These people are discontented grumblers, always complaining and finding fault. Their mouths are full of big talk about themselves, but they're not above flattering others when it is to their advantage. Now, loved ones, you should have remembered what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ said would happen. They predicted that in the final age there are bound to be those who pour scorn on godliness, whose lives will only be governed by their own godless cravings. People like this can only create divisions among you, since they, they only have their natural instincts to go by, and they lack the guidance of the Spirit. As for you, loved ones, be sure to go on building yourselves up 
on the solid foundation of your most holy faith, praying in the way the Spirit gives you. Stay in love with God, waiting patiently for the time when our Lord Jesus Christ in His sheer mercy will bring you into immortal living. As regards the others, here is my advice. To those who are still wavering, be especially kind and gentle. Those who have already been led into error must be snatched from the fire before they are badly burned. And those who have been thoroughly contaminated should be treated better than they deserve, though you must never lose a healthy fear of being infected yourself, even by their stained underwear. Let's just praise the one person who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand upright in his glorious presence without any imperfection but with great jubilation. The only God there is, and he's our Saviour too, through Jesus Christ our Lord. For to him alone belongs all glory, all majesty, all power, and all authority before history began, now in this present time, and for all ages to come. Absolutely true. That's what the word men means. <laughs> Absolutely true. Too many que- preachers put a question mark at the end of Amen. Amen? <laughs> a horrible thing. <laughs> Amen. Absolutely true. It's not a question. All right. We come now to Jude, the most neglected book in the New Testament, it's been called, partly because it's small and people despise small things, partly because it's full of strange things. What's this about the archangel Michael or Michael arguing with Satan over Moses' body? What on earth does that refer to? We've got to do a bit of digging and find out what that's about. And, and the sons of Korah, what did they do? And what did the angels do to be locked up in a dungeon like that? And it's also disregarded, I think, because it's quite a severe letter. People don't like reading severe letters. They like reading nice letters. And it's quite sharp. A surgeon wielding a knife here to cut out the cancer in the body of Christ. You see, all churches are in danger. Some face external danger, persecution from outside. And that's not something to worry about because that just pushes the Christians together and makes them strong. The church always grows. It's dangers from inside, legalism, liberalism, Christians who are too narrow-minded and Christians who are too broad-minded. These are the dangers from inside, and they can destroy the body of Christ. Legalism says you are not free to sin, and we're going to see that you don't. License says you're free to sin, and it's okay now you're a Christian. True liberty says you are free not to sin. Now that's the difference. Can I just run through that again? Legalism says you're not free to sin. Not in our church, you're not. (laughs) We have rules. (laughs) License says it's okay, now you're a Christian. Once saved, always saved. You got your ticket to heaven. Doesn't matter. You might lose a bit of reward or blessing, but you won't lose the kingdom. You're free to sin, in other words. But liberty, true liberty, says in the Spirit you are free not to sin. And that's a freedom that nobody has except Christians. 
and I'm afraid there are plenty of Christians who don't seem to have found it yet, but we're free not to sin. Isn't that beautiful? That's real freedom, because nobody else has that kind of freedom. Well, now, this writer is actually the fourth youngest brother of Jesus. Interesting, the brothers of Jesus didn't believe in him during his lifetime. They teased him. They said, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. The Messiah is coming at the Feast of Tabernacles. You better go out and show yourself. And he just said, my hour has not yet come. Then he did go up secretly, but his brothers didn't believe in him. At one stage, his own family thought he was crazy, and it says Mary and his brothers and sisters came to take him home and lock him up. They said he's beside himself. That's the old phrase for schizophrenia, when you're beside yourself. You know? He's beside himself. He, he's a carpenter who thinks he's God. Split mind. And they couldn't get near him for the crowd. They sent a message in, your family's come to take you home. Your mother and brothers and sisters are waiting outside. And he got the message. He said, who is my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sister? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and my brother and my sister. Well, I mean, he's really gone crazy. He doesn't know his own family now. But after the resurrection, the whole thing turned around and his brothers all became missionaries for Jesus. <laughs> James and John wrote two letters, two parts of our New Testament, James and Jude rather, and they both, they never called themselves, I'm Jesus' brother, you know. They both said, I'm a slave of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> his own brothers. But he did slip in a little hint. He said, and um, I'm the brother of James, you know who. <laughs> you see? <laughs> so he just slipped it in. <laughs> Um, but he's a slave of Jesus now, and uh, therefore he has this passion for the truth of the Christian gospel. And he said, I wanted to write a quite different letter to you. I wanted just to write about the salvation we enjoy in Jesus. But he said, from what I've heard, I had to change my letter. And he said, I'm pleading with you to keep up the painful struggle for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. The word he uses is a very painful word. It is the most painful struggle that you'll ever have when you've struggled to keep the faith once delivered to the saints and keep the truth as it was. It's painful because it's your own brothers and sisters that you have to deal with so often. And it's always painful to have to deal with things in the family. So this is how the letter came. And he said, people have secretly wormed in to your fellowship. They've sneaked in. Horrible words he uses. The verbs are all sort of underhand, you know. They've sneaked into your fellowship. They've come in the back door somehow. And, and they're poisoning. They're poisoning the fellowship. He never names them, but he just says, you've got to deal with them. And he points out that the process of the cancer spreading is, is a very clear process. And, and once he outlines it, you can see it happening in the church. It starts with a perversion of the creed, with a corruption of the creed, what you believe. That's where it all starts. And the two things that uh, Jude mentions are a sentimental view of God and a syncretistic view of Jesus. The sentimental view of God thinks that God's grace is an excuse for immorality. You know, that God doesn't take sin seriously. He's a nice old boy, pats you on the head and says, well, let's forgive and forget. All I want you to be is happy. That's the caricature. And I hear that God preached on TV. I hear this nice, comfortable God who wouldn't harm a fly preached constantly 
It's a sentimental view of God. It's not a scriptural view of God. I tell you, that hymn on Habakkuk is more a scriptural view of God. There's a strong sense of God dealing with bad situations. God doesn't overlook sin. He deals with it. And we need to recover that non-sentimental view but scriptural view of God. That was the first thing. They saw the grace of God as a kind of light view of sin. Well, it doesn't really matter. I just want to forgive you. People take advantage of that. I think of the dying poet Heine. He was Jewish and German, but he finished up in Paris, and he lived a pretty sinful life in Paris and died early. And they brought a priest to hear his confession, and he wouldn't confess his sins. And the priest said, why won't you confess your sins? And he said, dear ma pardonera, c'est son métier. God will forgive me. That's his trade. See, that's the sentimental view of God that takes the grace of God too lightly. And it was there. And the other side of it is that uh, they took a syncretistic view of Jesus. They no longer believed that Jesus was the only Master and Lord. Once you put Jesus in a pantheon with Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest, he is no longer the only way to God. He is no longer the way. He's only a way. He is no longer the truth and the life, but a truth and a life and there are many roads to God. How many times have you heard that said on the media and even by your next-door neighbor that there are many ways to God? See, this was getting in. It's syncretism, and Jesus is only one among many guides to God. He is no longer the only. There's a key. Now, once you've corrupted people's creed, it's not long before their conduct goes haywire, because ultimately your belief determines your behavior. And Jude now comes to the severest part of his warning. Now remember he's talking to Christians and he says, look what happened to the Jews who misbehaved, to the angels who misbehaved, and even to Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, God's people are not exempt from judgment and that needs to be writ large in the sky. Because it's amazing how many people think that once you're a Christian you finish the judgment. Who said that? The Bible doesn't. Embarrassing to talk about these three points. Let's look at them. First of all, Israel in the wilderness. Do you remember what happened? A golden calf, an orgy, idolatry, immorality. As soon as they got a wrong view of God, they had a wrong view of each other. And they stopped loving God. And they stopped loving each other. And they mistreated each other. Do you know, if you go to the European Stock Exchange that's been built in Frankfurt-on-Main, outside you'll see a huge golden calf. It's right back in, at the very center of European finance, the worship of mammon. Well, that's what they did in the wilderness, and the result was none of them got into Canaan. They'd been redeemed from Egypt, but they didn't get into Canaan. They'd started out, but none of them finished. Now listen, that particular incident is used three times in the New Testament by three different writers to warn Christians that it's not those who start but those who finish. See, three times Paul uses it, Hebrews use it, Hebrews 4, and here Jude uses it. Listen, if the children of Israel got out of Egypt and were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb but didn't make it, that can happen to you too. I can't find any other meaning than that. It's not just what you've left behind, it's what's still ahead and that's not yours yet that you're making for. Otherwise, you perish in the wilderness. And that's a miserable place to be, living on manna. Manna means, what is it? 
That's the Hebrew word. What's for breakfast, mummy? What is it? And for lunch, what is it? Oh, not what is it again. And, and they, had, they lived on what is it for 40 years. And there are Christians in exactly that situation. They've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but they haven't got in yet. They're not pressing on yet. And they can perish right where they are. What happened to the angels at Mount Hermon? Well, we know details of this, not from the Old Testament, partly from the Old Testament, but partly from a book between the Old and the New Testament, the Book of Enoch, and it's a pretty sordid story, but since we're adults, let's uh, hear it. In the region of Mount Hermon, about 200 angels seduced human women and impregnated them. And this horrible intercourse between angels and humans took place. And the result was a horrible hybrid of creature, now died out, thankfully, called Nephilim. We don't know quite what they were. It, it's translated giants in some scriptures. We don't know what they were. But God has his order of life, and it is as offensive to him that angels had sex with human beings as that human beings should have sex with animals. And the Bible is very clear in condemning buggery as well. So that you see, God is offended, disgusted. It's an abomination to him when we step out of his order. And these angels did that. And we know that that was the introduction of occultism to the human race and the introduction of violence to the human race. Genesis 6 describes it, the result was violence filled the earth, perverted sex, occultism, and violence. Does that sound strangely familiar to you? That's the combination that it resulted in. And black and white magic go back to this horrible alliance between angelic and human beings. And those angels, they're not around now, thank God. Those particular angels are already in the lowest, darkest dungeon, chained until the Day of Judgment. They will never have a chance to do that again. It was that that brought the flood on, you know, because God said, I just can't cope with this anymore. The saddest verse in the Bible, I think, is, and God regretted that he had made man. It's like parents saying, I wish we'd never had the children. God only regretted making us. Amazing. Well, that's what the angels... Listen, if God's people Israel didn't escape judgment, and the angels don't escape judgment, how do you think you will as Christians? See? And the third example he gives is Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what you don't realize... Actually, there were four cities. We all know of Sodom and Gomorrah, but there was also Admar and Zeboim. There were four cities at the southern end of the Dead Sea, and they were engulfed and there's pitch in the sand there, and that caught fire in the earthquake that engulfed them. They're all buried beneath the lower part of the Dead Sea. You know, the Dead Sea is like a figure eight in two parts. They're under the bottom part, and that bottom part is, is drying up now, and Sodom and Gomorrah could well reappear in our lifetime. What a symbol that would be. They're all saying they've discovered Noah's Ark now, after everybody doubted it. If Sodom and Gomorrah reappear in our day, wow. What a th thing. What you don't know is this, that the fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah 2,000 years before Jesus was still burning in Jesus' day. And when Jesus referred to them, they could just walk 20 minutes outside Jerusalem and see the flames. And it says here, the fire which burned for ages of Sodom and Gomorrah. What went wrong there? 
Well, they misbehaved. They went against God's laws. And once again, perverted relationships came in. Homosexual relationships. And now, humanism is telling us that if you say anything about homosexuality, you're guilty of sex discrimination. Well, all this is in Jude's little letter and saying, now these men are leading you down that road and don't think that God will not judge you if you follow them. It's, it's serious stuff. You see, when your creed is corrupted, your conduct will be corrupted. When your conduct is corrupted, your character will be corrupted because your character is the result of your conduct. So an act reap a habit, so a habit reap a character, so a character reap a destiny. And so the next thing he talks about is their character. And he instances the character of three people in the Old Testament. He says Cain. Cain became a killer of his brother out of jealousy. He says these men are going to make you like Cain because they're jealous people and make you jealous. And Balaam, well, you know what Balaam was? He was a prophet who was offered money to say wrong things and the love of money got hold of Balaam. God had to speak to him through his donkey. Very gracious of God to speak through the only mouth that was anywhere near him at the time. But uh, Balaam was a man of avarice as Cain was a man of anger. And what about Korah? Man, Korah was a man of ambition. He was jealous of Moses and he wanted to set up his own show. You know, there are a lot of new churches setting up and that's great, but some of them are set up for the wrong reasons. And there are those that are set up because a man wants his own show. He's a son of Korah, doesn't accept God-given leadership, so he sets up his own show. Well, this is the kind of character that will emerge in this church if they don't deal with this problem. It'll be the character of Cain and Balaam and Korah. It'll be the character of anger and avarice and ambition. And once your character is corrupted, your conversation will be corrupted because your conversation comes out of your character, out of the fullness of the heart the man speaks. So what sort of speaking characterizes these dangerous people who've wormed their way into the fellowship well, they are grumblers and fault finders. Nothing's good enough for them. Beware of people who join your fellowship because they're dissatisfied with another fellowship. I give it six months before they're dissatisfied with yours. You know, there are grumblers and fault finders on the move, always looking for the perfect fellowship. And I say to you, if you're looking for the perfect fellowship, don't join it, you'll spoil it. Because if you're the sort of supermarket Christian who's looking for a perfect fellowship, you're just the sort of person who will spoil it. See? Grumblers and fault finders. But also there's another side to their speech which is uh, quite serious. They are boasters and flatterers. They boast about themselves to pull themselves up and then to pull themselves up a bit further, they boast, they flatter other people. Boasting and flattery go together. Flattery is a horrible thing. To encourage and to appreciate someone is great. To flatter them is to exaggerate. And you're doing it for selfish reasons and not to build them up in confidence. It was said of one businessman that he climbed higher than any other by licking the boots of the man above him and treading on the faces of the people below him. 
What an obituary. Boasting, flattery goes together and grumbling and fault-finding. Now that's the kind of corruption in this church. Can you see the progress of it? Creed, conduct, character, conversation. Now I'm sure when I've just expounded it like that, you can recognize it now. You probably remember encountering this. Now it's got to be dealt with. And it's got to be dealt with properly and delicately or else you'll make the situation much worse. So how do we deal with it? Well, the first thing is not to be surprised when things go wrong in the church. Some people are so surprised, you know, think, oh, it's dreadful. Listen, the Old Testament prophets told you to expect it, and the New Testament apostles told you to expect it. Why are you so surprised when there are problems in the church? That's because we're not yet entirely saved, and there are bound to be problems in the church. It's the way we deal with them that is important. But uh, we should be unshockable. There will be problems because none of us is yet all that God is going to make us. The Old Testament prophets, Enoch, I find this fascinating. You know, Enoch was the very first prophet in the Bible, first man to get a message from the Lord for other people. And it was a warning that God was going to come in judgment and deal with that whole generation and that uh, he would judge. And, and the word he used five times, godless. He's coming to deal with all the godless people and all the godless things they say and all the godless things they do in this godless world. He got stuck on that word. That was the word, godless, godless. And what Jude is saying is that these men who have got in among you are actually godless. And godliness becomes an object of their scorn. Godless. I've just remembered something I missed out in the first half, but I'll come back to that. Um, so Enoch was the first prophet to bring a message of judgment as well. And when he was 65 years old, he had a son. And he asked God what he should call the son. God gave him an extraordinary name for the son. He said, call him, when he dies it'll happen. Now fancy going to school and have the teacher say, what's your name, little boy? When he dies it'll happen. <laughs> No, have you done your homework when he dies, it'll happen. Um, the poor boy was landed with that name. Now, of course, it wasn't in English. His name was Methuselah. Methuselah. And that's why he lived longer than anybody else, because God is so patient. And he waited all that time before judgment came. And the day that Methuselah died, it began to rain. But by that time, Methuselah's grandson, Noah, had built a boat. Isn't it amazing? God waited 969 years before judging that generation. Isn't God patient? It was Martin Luther who said, if I was God, I'd have kicked the whole world to bits long ago. Thank God you're not God. Well, you might have done that. God is amazing patient, but judgment comes. The New Testament apostles warned us that in the last days there will be scoffers and godliness will be a joke. And that's exactly what it is now. You find out how much TV comedy laughs at godliness and the things that godly people believe. It's become a joke. And we become the laughing stock because we want to be godly. And godlessness 
is the in thing. Well, this is how we deal with it. We should have expected it, so don't be shocked. But we will have to deal with it. And the first way to deal with it is to make sure you're right and to build yourself up in faith, hope and love. It's the first thing you should do. And then you should seek to help the others. Now, there will be three categories of people. There will be those who are wavering, wondering whether to follow these teachers or not. Will be very gentle and kind with those who are in mental doubt. There will be others who have been led further into mortal danger. And it says, snatch them from the fire. Regard them as being in a house on fire and get them out any way you can. That little phrase has been used for evangelism as snatching people from the fire of hell. It's got nothing to do with that at all. It's snatching people from the fire, yes, of hell, but not because they're unsaved, but because they're Christians who are going to be led away. And the third category of people are those who are defiled. And literally in the Greek it says, be very, very wary of being infected by them, even by their stained underwear. Isn't that a strange phrase to use? But it's obvious that there are diseases that are introduced through sexual perversion and promiscuity and that we need to be afraid of, properly afraid of. And yet we should still have a concern. There's still people for whom Christ died. So don't be surprised by it, but do deal with it. And above all, remember all the time that he is able to keep you from falling. Now, you know, we so often quote one side of these keeping texts and uh, people so emphasize God is able to keep from falling. He is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. And, and if you put all the emphasis on him keeping, you will fail to notice that every time there's a verse that talks about God keeping you, there's another verse nearby that says, but you keep yourself. And just before the last verse of Jude, he is able to keep. Just before it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. It doesn't say he is certain to keep you from falling. It says he's able to. So keep yourself in him, for he is able to. And again in Timothy where Paul says, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him. Wonderful confidence. But that's just in front of where he says, I have kept the faith. There are two sides to keeping. He's able to keep, so keep yourself in him. You see the balance? And again, you need both truths, otherwise you overemphasize one thing or the other. It's not all on us and it's not all on him. It's keep yourself in him, for he is able to keep you. Go on trusting him and you won't fall. So now unto him who is able to keep us from falling, to the only as God. Let me just go back. There's one little puzzling bit that I didn't mention. What about the angel arguing with the devil about the body of Moses? Have you ever wondered about that? Well, now, there's an extraordinary statement at uh, the end of Deuteronomy. It says, Moses died on Mount Nebo, and no one knows where his grave is to this day. So did he bury himself? I mean, did you get that funny statement at the end of Deuteronomy? He was all alone, and he died alone, and no one was with him, and nobody knows where his grave is to this day. So who buried him? And the answer is that actually God sent the angel Michael 
to bury Moses. Angels are very practical people, you know. They're good cooks. Eli Elijah found out that angels can cook a jolly good meal. They can ride chariots. They, they can ride bicycles. I've heard of angels in Afghanistan riding bicycles, protecting a missionary on, it, on his bicycle. Angels are very practical. You've probably had one in your home or in your car without knowing it because when they came to Abraham, he thought it was just four men. They don't come with a shiny white nightdress and wings and a harp and long blonde hair. That's the Sunday school picture. I mean, how could you, in Hebrews 13, entertain angels unawares? <laughs> if that's how they appeared. No, they looked like normal humans. And this angel was sent with a spade to bury the body of Moses. But when he got there, the devil was standing over the body of Moses and said, you don't touch this body, he's mine. He's a murderer. He's mine. It was a confrontation. And it's just a lesson which some Christians need to hear today, that Michael didn't even rebuke Satan. You know, we can be very cheeky with Satan and you're very foolish if you do. He's far cleverer than you are. When I hear young people saying, we rebuke you, Satan, that worries me. Mikael said, the Lord rebuke you. And the devil went and Mikael buried Moses properly. That's behind the story there. There are good angels as well as bad angels. And... Uh, Mikael was a good angel. So, well, you can see that uh, the church were playing games, really, and were getting all confused. And Jude, who wanted to write them a nice letter about salvation to encourage them, said, I've had to write quite a different kind of letter because there's cancer in the body. I'm sure you've got one message in studying all these letters of Paul and John and Jude. The biggest danger to the church is from the inside. And we've got to watch it all the time and in truth and love contend for the gospel that was delivered once for all to the saints. There's a big battle on right now in the Western world to do just that. And if these videos can help you to fight for the truth, don't think everything I say is the truth. I'm not the Pope. I'm not infallible. I'm just an interpreter of the Word. The Word is infallible. The interpreters of it are not. If you can't find what I say in your Bible, forget it. But if you do find it there, then cling to it and fight for it and contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And may the little letter of Jude encourage you to do that when you realize what appalling danger Christians are in when people worm into the church with bad ideas and bad behavior and bad character and bad conversation. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.